Support for this podcast and the following message come from Wise, the app that makes managing your money in different currencies easy. With Wise, you can send and spend money internationally at the mid-market exchange rate. No guesswork and no hidden fees. Learn more about how Wise could work for you at wise.com. This is State of Ukraine from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep with NPR's best reporting on a war that is changing the world. And we can tell you today the war is not stopping, just changing locations. Russian officials made a hopeful-sounding statement this week. As Ukraine made proposals at peace talks, Russia said it would back off the capital, Kiev, and another city. Russian officials said they were making room for negotiation. But U.S. officials think their troops are just moving. Russia continues its assault elsewhere, like the besieged city of Mariupol. Civilians have been living in basements under bombardment and fleeing when they can. So if you want to know the latest news on the war in Ukraine, one place to be is standing on the road out of Mariupol. Civilians who make it out and head west on that road cross the Dnieper River over a bridge at a town called Zaporizhia. NPR's Jason Bobian went there. They arrive packed into battered cars, the windows of many of them blown out by bomb blasts. Dirty strips of white cloth flutter like flags of surrender from their door handles. The evacuees have taped signs with the word children on their hoods to try to identify themselves as civilians. They've traveled for days to cover just over 100 miles to get back into Ukrainian-controlled territory, and many of them are emotionally frazzled. The happiest moment was when they saw Ukrainian flags and, uh, and Ukrainian soldiers. Angelina Wojcienko and Yuli Bortnik just arrived, along with five other people in a compact Daewoo sedan. Their journey out of Mariupol took them a week. They moved in fits and starts, sleeping in their car and trying to gauge the security situation in front of them. They both break down in tears when they describe finally getting through the last Russian roadblock. They'd been sheltering in a basement in Mariupol without electricity or running water for weeks. Explosions and fighter jets shook their building. Their phones were dead and they didn't know whether it was safe to leave or not. Vochenko says when they came out of the basement last week and saw their city in ruins, they knew they had to leave. When they realized that there will be not enough of supplies, they walked to the nearest street and then they saw all the block of flats completely destroyed and no shops and there were some stores looters. So people were looking for some food and they realized that it won't be possible to stay there. Another evacuee describes emerging from a bomb shelter into what he describes as a wasteland with dead bodies in the streets. The main bridge out of Mariupol has been destroyed, forcing the evacuees to try various routes out of the city under the constant threat of shelling and snipers. One man, Vadim Timoshenko, says his family tried three times to get out. Then, on the road, they were constantly being stopped by Russian soldiers and checkpoints. Every kilometer there is a Russian checkpoint and they search the cars, the phones. He says they deleted everything off their phones because they knew the Russians were looking for signs of pro-Ukrainian sentiment. He says even in the cold, the soldiers would strip-search the evacuees looking for weapons. Another young man, Ilya, who didn't want to give his full name, says despite deleting his social media apps, soldiers found references to Russian warships in his Google search history. Laying face down, naked on the floor with a gun to his head, he says they told him to confess to being a spy. 
Сейчас с тобой приедет машина, ну и все под автоматами. They took him to the basement and he thought he would never see his family again. He asked if he could see his family for the last time, but they told him you would never see them. After holding him for several hours, Ilya says a Russian soldier offered to let him go if his family paid 200 euros to release him. Before the war, Mariupol was a city of just over 400,000 people on Ukraine's southeastern coast. It's the last piece of Ukrainian territory blocking the Kremlin from having complete control of a land corridor between Russia and the Crimea region, which it seized in 2014. Most of the population has already fled. According to Ukrainian officials, up to 100,000 people may still be in the city. There have been reports of Russian troops forcibly deporting people from Mariupol to Russia. Artyom, who just escaped, says residents are so desperate to leave and have so little information, they will go anywhere to get out of Mariupol. If you will say to the people, okay, you have choice, you can be in a basement or go to some safety place, we have buses, they will sit in the buses and go to any other country. They even don't think about other options. He looks around the parking lot filled with evacuees, a few Red Cross vans and Ukrainian police. It's not safe even here, he says. His hope is to get to Germany. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Zaporizhia, Ukraine. Okay, Ukraine and Russia may have signaled some progress in peace talks, but the situation remains perilous. And here's a sign of that. When the war first started going badly for him, Russia's Vladimir Putin said he was putting nuclear forces on a higher state of alert. More recently, Russia warned without any evidence about chemical and biological weapons in Ukraine, which triggered fear that Russia was about to use those weapons itself. So how serious is the threat? Our national security correspondent Greg Myrie spoke with Elsa Chang. All right, so we are literally talking now about nuclear weapons, about chemical weapons. These are, these are taboo weapons. Why are we even discussing their possible use in Ukraine right now? Well, in, in fair part, because the leaders have raised them, Putin and Biden and the head of NATO. Uh, now, Putin made his announcement in front of the cameras just a couple days into the war. He was clearly signaling that Russia has the ability to escalate. And just last week, Biden said that if Russia used chemical weapons, this would trigger a response that he didn't specify. Now, most of the experts we've talked to said you can't rule out the use of these weapons, but the actual likelihood of a chemical weapon attack uh, being used as low, and the risk is uh, even lower still for a nuclear weapon attack. Okay. I guess that's a little reassuring, but how are those experts able to conclude this? Well, these weapons can, of course, inflict mass indiscriminate casualties, but Russia is already using very heavy weapons, and it's not clear how these additional weapons would help Russia achieve its aims. So I raise this with Michael Kaufman. He's an expert on the Russian military at the research group CNA. Chemical weapons aren't necessary, at least in the way Russia's fighting this war. They have the artillery, they have the firepower, and they have the air power if they want to be this brutish and prosecute such an ugly campaign in the cities. Not to say it's a lot better, but it's a lot more practical than having to use chemical weapons. And he says the same is true with nuclear weapons. Uh, again, they can inflict the huge casualties, terrorize a population, but it's not clear they'd produce the desired military outcome. Sure. It sounds impractical from a military perspective, but 
Greg, I mean, on top of that, wouldn't Russia also face total global condemnation if it did use these kinds of weapons? Uh, that's absolutely true. Russia knows there would be strong political blowback, and Russia is already very isolated. It doesn't have many friends. It needs the help from those that it does have. And again, here's Michael Kaufman. Politically, it's unsound because use of chemical weapons would dramatically increase the risk that the United States or NATO will intervene to this war. And that's something Russia really doesn't want. And so the risk versus benefit calculus simply isn't there. I don't want to say that's impossible, but it is improbable. So I want to stress Russia hasn't used nuclear or chemical weapons on the battlefield. But under Vladimir Putin, Russia has been blamed for using chemical nerve agents against Putin's critics abroad. There's been several well-documented cases over nearly two decades. Also, Russian forces have been in Syria, closely allied with the Syrian president. And that government has used chemical weapons in the country's civil war. That is NPR's Greg Myrie. Thank you, Greg. My pleasure. And this is State of Ukraine from NPR News. We have regular updates in this feed. Sean Saldana produced and Kelly Dickens edited. I'm Stephen Skeep. This is NPR News. This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Breast cancer cells multiply faster because of CDK4-6 proteins. But what if blocking those proteins and stopping runaway cell division was possible? Dana-Farber scientists laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, new drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. Dana-Farber's momentum of discovery keeps finding new ways to outmaneuver cancer. More at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series filled with hope and possibility about where people are today and what could come next. From tech to tradition, from climate to culture, from science to spirituality. Join futurist Ari Wallach on a journey around the world as he meets the brilliant minds and brave pioneers remaking people's futures for generations to come. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app. The Bullseye podcast is, according to one journalist, the, quote, kind of show people listen to in a more perfect world. So make your world more perfect. Every week, Bullseye puts the pop in culture, interviewing brilliant authors, musicians, actors, and novelists to keep you on your pop culture target. Listen to the Bullseye podcast, only from NPR and Maximum Fun.